Cape Up is sponsored by T. Rowe Price. Are you looking to learn a thing or two about getting your finances in order, saving, and investing? Check out The Confident Wallet, a personal finance podcast series by T. Rowe Price and the Washington Post Brand Studio. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Jonathan Capehart, and welcome to Cape Up. It's Christmas, and who better to spend it with than Mark Hamill? This conversation was originally recorded at his home in Malibu in April. Mark Hamill, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. This is what a treat, just so the listeners know. We are in your home. Right. We're at your dining room table. Right. Um, so thank you. You're welcome. Very much for, for having <laughs> us. So correct me if I'm wrong. You're the middle of seven children. I am, yeah. But the only actor in the family. Only actor. My older brother's a doctor, so we still consider the success of the family. Because <laughs> science beats the arts, let's face it. Okay, fine. But So where did the acting bug come from? That's interesting because I always uh, enjoyed making people laugh and being the middle of seven, especially since my older brother was such an overachiever, honor roll and tall and in sports and all these things. There was not a lot left for me, but... I, I, I could make people laugh. I, I put on puppet shows. I, I would get obsessed. I mean, I remember being so in love with the Peanuts comic strip that I started uh, trying to draw and be an artist. And I would cut out each comic strip and, and paste them into a scrapbook and so forth. But uh, I, had a, I had a ventriloquist dummy. And I hosted a fifth grade talent show with this ventriloquist dummy. And I'm telling you, it, the reason it's pivotal is that I realized you could insult people and then blame it on someone else. <laughs> you like Mr. Gagnon? I love Mr. Gagnon. Oh, he always makes me gag. Oh, that's terrible. Don't say something like that. And there you get a shot in at the, your, <laughs> at the teacher that you're not crazy about. And it was just, first of all, I got laughs, which was a revelation. I didn't know I wanted to be an actor. I, I would watch these shows on the Walt Disney. I'd see like um, Clarence Nash doing Donald Duck and a light bulb went off. Oh my gosh, somebody goes to work every day and does Donald Duck and that's his job. I do a terrible Donald Duck, but I thought I want that job and I'm keeping this all to myself because I didn't want to get ridiculed by my brothers and sisters. Oh, Mr. Hollywood here. But I knew really early on, I said, I don't know what I'm going to do, but you'd see these making of, making of Darby O'Gill and the little people, making of, you know, Babes in Toyland, whatever it was. And you'd see, oh, there's people that are carpenters that make the sets. There's the camera crew. Hey, I'm not a bad cook. Maybe I could cater a film, but I don't have to be in the show. I want to be near the show. And then, of course, doing theater in school really got me. By the time I was in high school, I looked at the first eight hours of the day is just something to get through so I could get to my real job, rehearsal. Yeah. In my own mind, I thought I was already a professional actor. Now, in your childhood, because your father was in the Navy. Yes. And so you moved around a Nine lot. Nine schools in 12 years. So how? So throughout all of the, the moving and everything, yeah. that the acting bug stuck with you. Yeah, not just the acting bug. Like I say, I was interested in other things. Like, I would audition for a play. If I didn't get it, fine. I'll work in props. I'll paint sets. I'll work in the box office. I love making posters because you could do the art and you could uh, be a part of the show. So, like I say, I didn't limit myself to being just an actor. And my parents kept 
they were very discouraging. You know, they were saying, you can't do this. I mean, it's crazy. <laughs> we didn't know anybody in show business. We didn't know anybody who knew anybody in show business. The biggest celebrity we ever met was our next door neighbor in San Diego was a baggage handler at the San Diego airport and returned Jerry Lewis's wallet when he dropped it on the tarmac. And I was just awestruck because I thought, you know, because Jerry Lewis belonged in, in some other world. I mean, I didn't think of him as a real person. You know, it's like seeing your teacher at the grocery store. Right. It's she so, eats? Yeah. You know, it's so weird. Uh, so that to me was like, I, I was starstruck in that sense. And, I, and it, it became more and more real to me. Now, moving from place to place to place to place was always on the coast, you know, from San Diego to Pennsylvania to back to San Jose to New York, Virginia, all these places. And then I graduated from uh, Yokohama High School in Japan. It gave me the ability to sort of be a chameleon and try and fit in. Because what was cool in San Diego, I'll never forget, I wore a pair of powder blue uh, Levi corduroys. Oh, to I school. know those. Yeah. I loved, I had a pair of those. Well, don't wear them in New York because they go, hey, look at Surfer Joe over here. And I never wore them again, you know? You have to figure out what works. You know, in 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 uh, in uh, Virginia, it's very collegiate. You know, the Gantt ties, the pullover sweaters, the penny loafers, the, you know, the slacks. Then you wear that in San Diego and they think you're some kind of, I don't know, a nerd or whatever. So you're at that age, when you're young, for me anyway, I didn't want to stand out. I just sort of wanted to fit in and uh, blend in. And maybe that helps, you know, like I say, adapt and, and, mm -hmm. and, and learn. Because it's subtle differences, but different nonetheless. So I was watching the, the uh, ceremony when you got your star on the Hollywood yeah. Walk of Fame, um, that you were exuberant. Harrison Ford was there. George I Lucas was, so... was there. But your your siblings were there. Yes. And these are the people who you just said, you know, suffered through your puppet shows yes. and everything. And I was wondering, how have they dealt with your fame? Are they sitting there like this, the, the kid who was doing the puppet shows is, like now this cultural icon well first of all the fact that i can share it with them is so meaningful to me and once i d decided to go into the business and i started getting work they were always supportive i mean it was my parents that said you've got to have something to fall back on so when i was in college i wasn't just a theater arts major i, I was getting credits uh, for the degree I would need to be a teacher. Because I thought if I really tank, I could always become a drama teacher, still do plays and so forth. And I like kids. I like working with kids. I think I'd be a good drama teacher. But uh, in a way, I like working without a net because uh, it's just there's an exhilaration to that idea that you can fail spectacularly. And you mentioned Harrison Ford and George Lucas. They asked me, who would you like to be there? And I said to, to my family, I said, you know who I'd really love is George and Harrison, but they'll never come. I mean, both of them have an aversion to crowds and paparazzi and, and, and all of that hoopla. So it was really meant the world for me to have them both accept. I mean, George flew down, did the ceremony, and flew back up north, which is incredible. Harrison, I mean... He's curmudgeonly and cranky and all that, but you know, in a pinch, he's he's always been a, a great great friend to me. 
How have you dealt with the fame? Well, first of all, I still can't believe I got a star on Hollywood Boulevard, and I was there. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, the uh, and I'm right next to Minnie Mouse. That's prime real estate, my mm -hmm. friend. Right in front of the <laughs> El Capitan, next to like a real star, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, but uh, look, I, I always all I wanted was to do what I love doing and be paid for it. You know that I could, you know. Uh, survive in in the business and you know uh, support myself and the family if I had one. So this is all way beyond what I ever expected. To give you an example, I mean I wasn't getting a lot of the parts I was interested in after my initial uh, success. I went to Broadway where you could go on open audition days, and I auditioned for Sir Peter Hall uh, for Amadeus. He'd never seen the movies, and. Uh, so I got a lot of character parts that I liked on Broadway. Little did I know that an audition for the Joker, first of all, uh, I thought even if it's a success, it'll last like a year, two years, three years. You know, I did that first in 92. Now I took a long gap where I didn't do it. A lot of really good actors have played it since. Uh, Kevin Michael Richardson and John DiMaggio and Michael Emerson and, and the list goes on and on, Jeff Bennett. But then they asked me back for the Arkham Asylum games. And it was getting everybody back together from the original series. And almost every job, you'd form a surrogate family, whether it's a movie, a play, a television show, because you spend more time with them each day than you do with your real family. So it's funny because, uh, you know, growing up as a military brat, I kept thinking I would never do a job where I uproot my family constantly. And of course, you know, hey kids, we're going to England, we're going to Vancouver, you know, it's been the same. But um, when you were acting on, on Broadway, you, you've told this story before, and I think it, it gets to the, the how you handled fame piece. Right. And it was Carrie Fisher uh, looked in Playbill. She came to one of the shows and she looked in the Playbill and it had in your bio, right. it was like, you know, you starred in a couple of, science fiction movies. You didn't even I, put the title of the movies there. She so busted me on that. I said, Hamill, known primarily for a series of space-themed films. <laughs> space-themed <laughs> films. Because I said, no, I mentioned them, and she goes, this is BS. And then she said to you, she basically rhetorically took you by the lapels, and she said, uh, I'm Princess Leia, you're Luke Skywalker. Get used to it and get over yourself. Yes. And she was so far ahead of me in so many ways because I was really angry about that. Not angry, but just miffed and just sort of, I thought, oh, you know, Carrie, come on. You know, uh, I said, this is Broadway. You know, they, uh, if anything, the critics will resent me being in movies like that. And as, as you said, she said exactly those words. And I saw her, I don't know, a year or two later, uh, in an interview, just having the time of her life, embracing Princess Leia. You know, and I remember what Carl Reiner said when he was trying to write the pilot for Dick Van Dyke. What piece of real estate do I own that very few or no other people own? And in his case, it was being a writer for an established comedian living in New Rochelle and commuting to New York with a small child. And I thought, you know, she's really got it right. I'm busy trying to 
shed and run away from my past. She's embracing it and having way more fun than I am. But, you know, she's always ahead of me. I'll give you an example. When, when George asked to meet us, uh, we knew something was up because he didn't want Chelsea, my daughter. She said, Chelsea can go to uh, lunch with, uh, with George's daughter, but it's just going to be you, Carrie, and my wife. And I thought, oh, something's up. Uh, my wife, as we're getting ready to go over, she goes, What's it, what if he wants to do another trilogy? And I just laughed. I said, he specifically said, I'm not doing these anymore. After he does the prequels, he said, I'm not doing seven, eight, and nine because I don't want to be doing these things in my 70s. And even then, we weren't supposed to be seven, in seven, eight, and nine, as far as I know. They never talked about it. But... Um, so I just laughed and I said, no, he's going to want us to do like a, a DVD extra for uh, it's coming out on Blu-ray or they were, they were putting them out in 3D for a while. I don't know if they went all the way. It'll be something along the lines of something promotional. And God knows we owe him so much. Uh, of course, we would have done it. So when he said, uh, well, uh, I'm going to step down from Lucasfilm and uh, turn over to Kathy Kennedy and uh, they want to do another trilogy. And if you don't want to do it, we won't uh, recast. We'll just write you out of the story. Now I'm really good. I just, I just no expression. Carrie within seconds slaps the table and goes, I'm in. <laughs> and then she said, is there anything for Billy in it? Billy Lord, her daughter. I was sort of startled, but again, I didn't want to give anything away. So we finished the meeting, uh, took pictures with George, gave him a big hug, and he left. And I turned to Carrie and I said, Carrie, poker face. Why did you just jump in like that? I said, you know, I'm not your agent, but you got to play coy. You got to, I mean, be aloof. Be aloof for the better. Uh, you know, just in, you know, again, she turns to me, she goes, Mark, what kind of parts are there in Hollywood for women over 50? Again, miles ahead of me. Uh, because I just see things in a different way. It's funny because when they took us aside and said in the later installment, they, they took us up in the dressing room because the fact that Luke and Leia were brother and sister wasn't in the script, to keep it a secret. So they said that, that, well, that we were going to discover that we're siblings. And there was this great pause because, I mean, no one expected that. And I remember thinking, well, wait a second. If Luke is... Princess Leia's brother, does that make me royalty? And she immediately went, no. I said, all right. I'm just asking, relax. But it was one of those things where I knew it got under her skin so much that I never let it go. You know, it was like a dog with a chew toy. Because uh, she really was Hollywood royalty. Her mother was Debbie Reynolds. Her father's Eddie Fisher. You know, he was one of the biggest pop stars of all time. And, you know, when I would visit her after I got back from Star Wars, I'd go to her house for a birthday party, and you'd go in the driveway, and Maseratis, Lamborghinis, BMWs, you know, I'd, I'd park my Mazda two blocks away <laughs> and walk the rest of the way. And everybody there was, oh, that's, that's Dean Martin's daughter, and that's Lucille Ball's son, and everybody was somebody famous's child. It was a completely alien world to me back then. Because I was, you know, I was a working actor, but I didn't hang, I didn't go to Beverly Hills High School and so forth. So I said to her, I said, well, you are Hollywood royalty. And she loved being Princess Leia. She just, you know, who wouldn't? You know, everybody wants a title. So it seems, it seems as though, um, just given the story you just told, 
and what you said about wanting to run away from your past, is it safe to assume that being identified as Luke Skywalker was as much a curse as it was a blessing? Well, I wouldn't say they were equal. I It, it, it presented certain challenges. Such Be, as? Well, I wanted to go out for Midnight Express. And they said, no, we've seen him in Star Wars. He's not right for the part. And I always thought, well, that's unfair because... You know, people didn't think I was acting per se. They thought I was just, re, you know, reacting or that's who I was. And so if you can't get in the door to even get an audition, that can be a hindrance. You know, I, I probably wouldn't have been able to go out for Amadeus uh, if there weren't open auditions. I mean, they weren't clamoring for me to play the part. So, uh, but to tell you the truth, it's it's one of those things where now that I've returned, I'm enjoying it in a way I never could have in my 20s. Yeah, I mean, you can tell. I mean, again, oh. back to your star on Hollywood Boulevard. I mean, you're <laughs> like, it was as if you were 20 years old again. You're 23, 24 it's years so old hilarious. again. I know. Uh, I'm really having fun. Dis yeah, who wouldn't? Disney wants to make, they said, you're going to be a legend. We're making you a legend. And I said to my kids, see, it's more than in my own mind. <laughs> but I have an actual physical award that declares I am a legend. <laughs> it's like a certificate, you know? It's like, it's like my brother has something that proves that he's able to, uh, you know, be a doctor. An actor never really has that. And I just find it hilarious. I mean, I'm sort of self-conscious about it because I was inducted on the same day, well, Carrie posthumously, but with Oprah Winfrey, talk about not worthy. I mean, I just thought they're out of their minds. But if they're giving, I'm taking. <laughs> if they're offering, sure, why not? Okay, I'll be a legend. I'll have a star on Hollywood Boulevard. <laughs> so, but this, but this is actually kind of mind-boggling to me that what, in 1977, 40-something, 40 41 years after Star Wars came out and it was an instant classic right. and you became an instant cultural icon that it took some people to give you a thing saying you are a legend for well, you to... It was more than that. I, to tell you the truth, here's the thing that's so astonishing to me. The bond that has been forged with the public I, I can never get used to because it's so hard to compare it to anything. People uh, relate stories that are moving in a way. It got me through my my mother's cancer or, or my parents were breaking up and I would watch the movies. Or It's just, you know, uh, I visit these hospitals. This one just, I mean, because it's harrowing sometimes. You see these kids facing all these health issues. Now, I sort of like try and use humor, like, yeah, you don't look that sick to me. You're faking, right? Just to get out of school. And, you know, they're so used to people going, oh, you know, and fawning. They find that funny. But this one little kid had his arm amputated. He had a Luke a Lego he wanted to give to me. I said, oh, no, no, you keep it. In fact, if I can write really, really small, I might not be able to sign it, but I'll put my initials on it. He goes, no, I want you to have it because... I wasn't afraid of losing my arm because Luke lost his hand and it didn't stop him. I know. <laughs> you have to kind of keep it together so that you cry in the car going home. I mean, those hospital visits are, like I say, the only word I can use is harrowing. But they're so, um, they make you feel so good because you can't give back enough. And what I'm talking about is the 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 the, the public you know, they, they make so much, 
They get so much, they're so inspired. Not everybody. I always stipulate, okay, Star Wars isn't for everybody. But the people that do like it, love it with a passion like you can't believe. I mean, uh, sometimes people are just shaking. I remember George Harrison was on a flight, and I thought the last thing I'm going to do is go up and bother him, you know. I saw John Lennon. Uh, he lived, I lived at uh, 87 Central Park West, and I would go by his building all the time. I'd see him. I saw him with Yoko. I saw him once on Columbus Avenue and at a safe distance stalked him for <laughs> blocks. When he would stop, I would stop, look in the window. But I didn't go up to him because I remember he said, you know, he really loved living in New York because people left him alone. So I totally got that. But I just thought, well, I can't pass up this opportunity. I'll just write a note to him and just say, thanks so much for the music. You know, you really made a difference in my life. And I gave it to the stewardess to give to him. And she came over and she said, Mr. Harrison would like to meet you. Now, I wasn't prepared. I thought, oh my gosh, <laughs> I'm going to, I got this lump in my throat. Like I can only compare it to like when you get in trouble, I have to go to the principal's office where you get all verklempt and you think like, if I speak, I'm going to cry. So I said, okay, keep it together. Deep breathing and so forth. So I can't remember exactly what I said, but it was along the lines of, uh, you know, just thanks so much for your music. It just really changed my life. And, you know, I don't know what I said, but I just, I, thanks so much. I mean, I just can't tell you how much your music meant to me. And he looked up and he said, you're not so bad yourself. <laughs> First of all, it's perfect, understated, liver in humor. That's one of the things I thought about Hard Day's Night, which at that age, I was 12. I thought it was a documentary. It didn't look like a regular movie because it, it didn't seem like it had a story. It looked like they were just following around. Uh, and they were so, the, the self-deprecatory humor, the not taking themselves seriously, it just, uh, beyond their music, I really loved how exotic they were, you know, from, a, who'd ever heard of Liverpool? I mean, you'd seen standard English and Cockney in, in David Lean, uh, you know, uh, movies uh, based on, uh, uh, you know, David Copperfield and so forth, but that particular accent I'd never heard. And I love dialects. I love the sound of them. And ironically, when uh, Chelsea had a birthday when we were in England, and I said, what do you want to do for your birthday? She goes, well, Hard Day's Night's playing in the theaters. I'd love to see it on the big screen. Because, I mean, I showed it to my kids when they were little. I tried to show them all the stuff I love, the Honeymooners and Sergeant Bilko and the Little Rascals and all that stuff. Uh so they, they, you know, they got the Beatles and the Stones and the Kinks and all my 60s pop stuff. So we go see the movie. And now I'd seen it many, many times. The first time we went to see it in Virginia, the girls were screaming in the theater. Now that's the only thing that bugged me because I love the music. I couldn't understand why the girls were all screaming. That sort of, I thought, was irritating. So uh, uh, I went home and I said to my older brother, he was back from college, and I said, hey, Bill, we got to go see Hard Day's Night. It's so great. Uh, and I said, I told him what I told you, and I said, I've got the perfect solution. We'll go see it at the drive-in and eliminate the problem of the girls screaming in the theater. So we go to the drive-in, and you know, if you've seen the movie, it opens with that sting chord before they go into Hard Day's Night. As soon as the sting chord, beep, 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 I said, oh, those teenage girls, they're beeping. Now, they didn't do it as consistently throughout the film, but anytime a song started, beep, 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 but um, the only reason I bring it up is when I saw it then, I said, I want that. I want to be chased by adoring fans, endeavoring to tear me limb from limb. <laughs> I, I want that. 
It looks like so much fun. What's not to like? You know, they, they're playing music you love. Then I see it all these years later. It plays like a horror movie. These guys are trapped. They're in a train. Then they go to a car and they go to a hotel room. And they go to a TV studio, back to the hotel room. It's like they're prisoners of their own fame. It's, it's grotesque. And I thought, because, you know, there, I'm talking about the, all the upside of, of, of this, this pop culture status. There's a dark side where you're the prisoner of the memorabilia market. And there are dealers whose only job is to get your name on a poster or a toy or a photograph and then sell it on eBay. And they hound you. They're at the airports. If I go to a premiere, there are premieres. And I'm, I'm telling you, they have basketfuls of stuff. They're going, okay, Tom Cruise, Chris Evans, uh, Mark Harmon. Ah, here he is, Mark Hamill. And, you know, we see the same people over and over and over again, over and over and over again. And you do like Colbert, and they chase you to the airport on bikes. You know, it's just grotesque. And I love the fans. Not so fan, fond of the dealers, although you have to understand – it's a profession. They make a lot of money off of it. But, you know, you'll sign something at a TV studio and then go back to the hotel and it's already on eBay. And there's so many fake signatures, Jonathan. There's so many. I mean, I tried in a way to, I would, they'd say, is this real? And I would like it if it were real or respond, sorry, it's a fake. And then I started feeling bad because I figure if it's real to them, let them think it's real rather than raining on their parade. I don't want to be the bearer of bad news, but it, it, that's the part of it I just can't stand. Well, that gets to um, back to um, the original question about this, this story about Star Wars and the impact that it's had on people and people saying to you all sorts of things that put, put a lump in your throat. And an interview you gave in 77 on Australian television where you were asked to talk about the plot. And you said, it's impossible to tell the plot because the plot's not that important. It's the experience you feel when you watch it. Right. That's what you said before you became around the world, Luke Skywalker, before anyone saw Star Wars or knew yeah. what it was about. And all these years later, people are... They they are doing exactly what you said. Their experience it, it's the experience you feel when you when you watch right. it. How does it impact you to know that this little film that you did and had no expectations of what right. that it would succeed has had so has meant so much to so many people around the world for now more than forty years. It's you know you can't process it it's so huge and i was one of the few people that predicted it would be a success i said i remember saying this thing's going to outgross planet of the apes i'm talking about the charlton heston planet of the apes because it only costs like nine and a half i said so double and a half we only have to make about 22 million to break even i said this thing will do 30 35 easy because uh, that was contingent on whether we do parts two and three I said, I remember the very first day Robert Watts said, what do you think of what we're about to take on? He was the production manager in London. And I said, I think we're on a winner. And I, the reason I say that is I am a, a buff, you know, like I said, I read Famous Monsters and I loved science fiction and fantasy and horror films and all of that stuff. 
Um, and one of the things that struck me when I read the script for the first time, because you have to remember, I got the part before I read the entire script. I got it from a screen test. And which I saw. Oh, God. I <laughs> saw it. And it was like, wait, this is the screen test? I'm like, that's him. That's Luke Skywalker. I'm watching right now. Well, but I watched the other screen tests, and I, William Catt, Robbie Benson, Kurt Russell. I thought they were all good. I thought they all would have made great Luke Skywalkers. So how we, how they ended on me, I do know that there were two sets. There was a, a, a you know, a Han, a Leia, and a Luke, a Han, and a Leia, and a Luke. And they never mixed and matched. It was either group A or group B. Marshall Lucas said George was packing to go to London to make the movie. He still hadn't decided. And she takes credit for urging George to pick Carrie, Harrison, and me. So, uh, it, but uh, what was so hard was I couldn't figure out what kind of movie it was just from that screen test. And I was trying to figure out, you know, I said to Harrison, because he worked with him on American Graffiti, I said, is this like a parody? I mean, it's kind of... Mel Brooks or like a campy yeah, space yeah, yeah, movie. Yeah. Hey, whatever. Let's let's just let's get it done. So <laughs> he was no help. George said something to me that he would repeat many for many years later was, um, "Well, let let's just do it, and we'll talk about it later." Translation: Let's just do it, and we'll never talk about it later ever. Uh, so I was flying blind, but I thought, look, I can't take it upon myself to be arch or stylized or wink at the camera. The only thing I did right was I was sincere. Because you, and I, I, the lines, I mean, there was a line, you know, because Harrison says, you know, hey kid, I did my part of the bargain, you know, I'm gonna drop you off. And I said, but we can't turn back. Fear is their greatest defense. I doubt if the actual security there is any greater than it was on Aquilae or Sullust. And what there is is most likely directed towards a large scale assault. You go, huh? Who talks like this? I mean, you can diagram the sentence and it makes sense, but now try and say it as if it's coming to you uh, spontaneously. As you just did. Well, but what I'm saying is that you go, I, I can't put my finger on this. And the only reason I'm telling you this is that weeks later, my agent called and said, they want you for, for the part. I said, and what, in Star Wars? I said, and they're sending the script out today. I said, oh, okay. Um, and I got the script. I was still single. I was living in a one-bedroom place right on uh, PCH on the ocean, and I got the script, and I couldn't remember who, what character I had, was in the screen test because on the title page it said, uh, The Adventures of Luke Starkiller, which was my name before they changed it, and they didn't change it until after we filmed the scene. I'm Luke Starkiller. I'm here to rescue you. In fact, I looked on the call sheet. I said, wait a minute, 65 or whatever scene it was. I said, we already did that two weeks ago. They said, uh, they're going to reshoot it. I said, why? I said, there's a name change. I said, what's the new name? And I said, ask George. And I said, George, what's my new name? He goes, Skywalker. Now, I had gotten so used to Starkiller that I said, Skywalker, it sounds like fly swatter. I hate it. <laughs> <laughs> now it's different. Everybody's used to Skywalker. And I can understand. They want to take kill out of my name. Although I thought it, it gave him a little macho which he was in desperate need of but <laughs> i want to talk i want to talk about that because i rewatched star wars yeah. a new hope the first the first one yeah. that that blew our minds and watching it as an adult the thing i noticed right away was like my god luke is always complaining he is always complaining 
The even first after lines I, out of his mouth. Even he's after I leave Tatooine, I'm still complaining. Because <laughs> you know what? A lot of people, I know that was cringe inducing that wine. Because I wanted to, I reminded him of my sisters in the car going, but you said we could go to the mall. Uh, I wanted to, look, I, I couldn't be sure it'd be a hit. So I figure he's got to have an arc. He, you know, he goes from being this clueless farm boy to, you know, bringing down this technological marvel, the Death Star. So I got to make him as juvenile as possible so I have somewhere to go. So I thought, I've got to do it against my better instincts. I could have been cool. Hey, but I was going to Tashi Station to pick up some power converters. I said, but it wouldn't be right. It'd be cool, but it wouldn't be right. So I was willing to look foolish and cringe-inducingly whiny. But uh, listen, th these things, you never know they're going to last forever. I said to George, do they have, does she have to say, aren't you a little short for a stormtrooper? I'm self-conscious about my height as it is. And I, <laughs> I said, love even, that if line. This, even if it isn't a hit, this thing's going to follow me forever in reruns. Uh, you know, no, let's, well, let's just shoot it. We'll talk about it later. Uh, but anyway, when I read the script, the first thing that struck me, I said, this is so not science fiction. It, it reads like a Wizard of Oz with a gender switch for Dorothy, swept off this boring Kansas of a planet and <laughs> meeting a mechanical man and a big furry walking carpet and, you know, a pirate, a princess, a wizard. It's, it's so fairy tale as opposed, and it's funny. That's when I thought, look, this thing, because, you know, their focus groups say women don't like science fiction. I said, well, this is much more of a swashbuckling kind of pirate movie come World War II movie. It's got all these elements. There's the searchers in it. <clears throat> There's all these elements. Plus, the princess is effortlessly a feminist. You know, she takes over her own rescue. You call this a plan, grabs our guns, makes us look like complete chumps. You know, she's following, we're following her around. So I thought it had, and plus it was funny. Robots arguing over whose fault it is. I mean, really? <laughs> and I also love the fact that you're in a movie like this, you're waiting for the monsters. You're waiting for the monsters. Now there's, there's the, whatever they call them, Tusken Raiders. And there's the Jawas, but they're not like monster monsters. Then out of nowhere, you walk into a bar and there's monsters everywhere you look. That I thought was hilarious. So I thought, even if this thing doesn't kill him at the box office, it's got midnight movie written all over it. We'll be in rotation with Rocky Horror Picture Show. People will be <laughs> like, toking and then going to see it because it's so trippy, right? Uh, I didn't uh, expect it to come out of the gate because I kept thinking, where are the ads on Saturday Night Live? I'm not seeing any ads. I'm not seeing any pre-publicity. Turns out later, uh, the publicity department at Fox couldn't decide on an ad campaign. We opened with no poster, none. Just, they just put photographs outside because they couldn't figure out what, which way to go. The poster came weeks, maybe even months later. We only opened in 32 theaters, and it was all 70 millimeters. So on the day of the opening, May 25th, 77, the driver picked me up to go do ADR, which is dubbing, uh, additional dialogue recording for the 35 millimeter prints. And I said to the driver, hey, can you go buy Grauman's Chinese? Because I want to, it's now man's Chinese, but can you go buy the theater? I want to see what it looks like out on the marquee. He said, sure, because we were going into, deeper into Hollywood. So he goes by, I couldn't believe my eyes. There's lines around the block. And it was like 11 in the morning. I thought, well... I would be there first day for a show because 
it's just my cup of tea, but I didn't expect it to be uh, the very first day like that. And I thought, oh boy, I hope word of mouth works because, and of course, you know, it opened in 32 theaters by the weekend, 43, and by the end of the summer, a thousand. And in this day of digital downloads and instant uh, home entertainment, it was in theaters for over a year and a half. I remember the Christmas of the Christmas season of 78 when I first told Lucasfilm I'm not doing the holiday special. I hate it. Uh, George called me and said, look, it's been in the theaters for almost 18 months. It's mostly to keep it alive in people's minds for the toys and for the merchandising. Do this as a favor to me. I said, well, okay, but, but I'm not singing. Mark loved singing. Luke wouldn't sing. And the only mistake we made was not doing it in-house. They just farmed it out to a... Uh, to the people that do those kind of Bob Hope specials and so forth. Great cast, Art Carney, B. Arthur, and all that. Oh, and by the way, Lucasfilm said, we stopped talking about the holiday special. <laughs> <laughs> and, and here I am. But no, but I think I said, you got to own it, okay? That was a terrible mess step. We all look like boobs, but you got to own it. I said, you should put it on an extra on the DVD. Don't run from it. You know, the Beatles got criticized for Magical Mystery Tour. Now everybody loves it. I haven't seen the holiday special, but I heard it's pretty. <laughs> you were right. <laughs> yeah, well, but I don't know. I mean, well. Well, let me ask you this, because, uh, again, in Star Wars, Luke was super whiny, but he was also very goody two-shoes. Yeah. So it seems as though Luke has gone from golly gee yeah. to get off my lawn <laughs> in The Last Jedi. Yeah. So there you are. The closing scene of Force Awakens, it's so dramatic. There's Rey. She's climbed up that big mountain. There you are cloaked in that, that I don't even know the name for it's it. It's a robe with a hood. A robe with a hood. Right. And you turn around. You take the hood right. off. You look. You regard the, the, the lightsaber with such intent. And then, boom, the screen goes black. Yeah, yeah. And everyone just loses their mind yeah. because they're seeing you again and they're seeing the lightsaber. And then Last Jedi opens. Now we're back on the mountain. It's as if... And by the way, don't you love a cliffhanger literally, literally on, on a, a cliff? cliff? Yes. Yeah. Now, yes. to me, I love like, visual puns like that. I can't believe it was just an accident. But I said <laughs> to the guys, I said, look, this isn't even... The, I'm not in episode seven this is the beginning of episode eight i asked for three things no cameos no two things no cameos and a run of the trilogy contract so i'd be in all three i said i know it's not my story anymore but i want to be you know pivotal the way alec guinness was so what happens i'm in a cameo and i'm gone at the end of eight. <laughs> so i'm oh for two <laughs> and like i say i only got one movie to me, the end of seven is the beginning of eight. Right. And, uh, well, you know, I had my problems with eight only because I said Luke wouldn't give up. I mean, no matter what he did, a Jedi doesn't give up, period, end of story. But what I have to understand is it's not my Star Wars anymore. It's not George's Star Wars anymore. It's, it's JJ and it's Ryan. And, you know, it's above my pay grade to say, I won't do this, Luke won't do that. And I had to sort of throw out the George Lucas in me and say, what can I do to make it the best it can be based on his vision of it? And Ryan's a wonderful guy. I mean, he's so 
Uh, Did you guys get along? Yeah, very much so. Really? Because I, in reading around, there were these you know questions about fundamental differences you two had. Well, I just told you what they of. were. But but the thing is, here's my only problem. I shouldn't have done that publicly. That belongs in the rehearsal process and in the filming process. It's outside of public view. It, and I slipped up. I let my guard down uh, because. Uh, like I say, I don't think, uh, I, I opened it up to debate in a way that I shouldn't have. Um, and, you know, as far as I'm concerned, even though I disagreed with his, and he would say, well, no, but Luke does, the, do eventually does the right thing selflessly for the good of everyone else. Saving the day. Yes, but, but what I was saying was, initially, I don't say I would secrete myself on a, a desert, you know, a, a distant island and shut off communication. That really killed me that I wouldn't even accept incoming calls from your sister. <laughs> um, that seemed a little extreme, but again, it's only a movie. It's fantasy and it should, by the way, that's one phrase you should never say in front of 3000 Star Wars fans. I one time said, it's only a movie. I thought they were, I mean, like I'd spit on the Pope. There was this <laughs> gasp in the eyes. <gasps> and then I thought I saw such hatred in their eyes. I said, guys, guys, I'm quoting George Lucas. Because we would get into these fights shooting. I remember we were on the Death Star, and I'm going, hey, I don't like the way Han sort of hitting on the princess, you know? Uh, and, hey, kid, I, just, I said, no, but I just, I just want to say, I would pick up on that, and I wouldn't like it. And George is going, no, no, Luke's only focused on, you know, getting back with I said, well, okay, and we'd get into these things, right? And he'd break it up by saying, hey, come on, let's just, it's only a movie, let's do it. So I had to tell, I'm quoting the master here, but I've learned my lesson. I'll never say that again in front of Star Wars nerds. So, I mean fans. So, so Force, uh, The Last Jedi, again, it opens up, and you're, she hands you, Ray hands you the lightsaber, and the get-off-my-lawn moment starts... You just take it and you throw it. You just yeah, you yeah. just toss it behind you. Yeah. Well, I mean, what? See, I was. Tw- oh, go ahead. You know, I. I mean, it was just for someone for Star Wars fans mm. to go from golly gee to and so who devoted. Give, who, who gives a damn about this lightsaber? Yeah, yeah. I'm on my rock in the middle of the ocean. Yeah. That was a gasp worthy moment. Yeah, it's radical. Uh, and, you know, I have to balance the fact that I love the unexpected, you see. So the, the, a lot of the choices that Ryan made, I thought, oh, this is rich. Because like I, I said, I know just not only throwing it away, but just casually tossing it. Yeah, as if with no this, means regard. Noth- yeah yes. this means nothing to me. But then that's ex- because uh, Luke has decided that perpetuating this conflict forever is the wrong thing to do. I mean, because I, I mean, I had to find a way, you have to find a way to work uh, uh, all of these things out. I mean, it's a fantasy, but, and even though I don't have experiences in my real life and I'm not uh, a method actor per se, I thought, what can I do to relate to this guy? Well, I thought, well, as a member of the Beatles generation where we thought love is all you need, that by the time we take over the world, there'll be no wars, There'll be no more discrimination. Pot will be legal. I don't know what I thought, but I just thought, and we failed. One of those things came true, well, I know. depending on the state. But I mean, the least important of them. And arguably, the world is much worse now. 
I mean, I thought, well, after Vietnam, we'll learn our lesson and we won't get into pointless wars that don't have any purpose. Little did I know. I thought we'd learn from that experience. So like I say, uh, I had to sort of relate to that aspect of his cynicism. Uh, and, and But Brian said, no, but it's more than that. You're making a conscious effort to end the war between the Sith and the Jedi because you've seen how this endless cycle just keeps on going and going and going. Because, you know, he said, uh, you know, you're lamenting the fact that you thought Kylo Ren was the next chosen one and you were wrong. I said, yeah, but even if I, you know, didn't recognize him as the next Hitler, I would avenge my mistakes and come back double strong. It, basically, it gets down to just a difference of opinion. But all I had to do was get that off my chest because I thought, I can't go through this whole process harboring these feelings and not telling him. If I get it all out on the table, uh, he will agree or disagree, we'll talk about it, and then I won't feel like I'm carrying this uh, around with me. And once I got that off my chest, uh, I was able to look at it in a different way and, like I say, do the best I could with what I think is probably the most challenging, unexpected Star Wars movie since Empire. Oh, challenging just in terms of uh, the well, acting and the story. Well, and it's more cerebral. I mean, like I say, it's got more ideas in it than a funhouse ride. Not that right. there's anything wrong with that. I mean, I love Star Wars for that reason. You just sit down and it sweeps you away. The reason I liked Empire better was, like I say, the Yoda character, the fact that it had an unexpected ending, the the twist at the end, and it was darker, it was more cerebral, it was uh, more challenging for the audience. And we didn't have Rotten Tomatoes and instant communication with the internet like in those days, but that was really controversial in, in its day. I mean, a lot of people were outraged that it wasn't all tied up neatly with a happy ending like the first one. Cape Up is sponsored by T. Rowe Price. Are you looking to learn a thing or two about getting your finances in order, saving, and investing? Check out The Confident Wallet, a personal finance podcast series by T. Rowe Price and the Washington Post Brand Studio. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Let me, I want to read something to you because, you know, in preparation for this, I reached out to a lot of friends of mine who are Star Wars fans. And um, Stephen Fisher wrote just this little comment. I would love to get and, your and reaction. And who is he? He no. wrote Star Wars. What does he do? Um, he's a bit... He's a big oh, okay. political strategist, okay. communications guy in, in Washington. Um, he writes, Star Wars has always had political themes. The original series was very much an element, elemental rebels versus evil fascists uh, them theme. The prequels presented a surprisingly nuanced and prescient political backstory about the fall of an intergalactic democratic republic epitomized when Natalie Portman's Padme declares, so this is how democracy dies, to thunderous applause. And of course, the resistance from the new sequels have become the clarion call for the anti-Trump movement. What do you think of that? Well, I think that uh, movies always speak to modern audiences uh, regardless of uh, what period of time they're set in. Or, And in, in a way, fantasy and science fiction, it's, either, it's easier to talk about uh, political issues, invasion of the body snatchers. It was so, uh, you know... Uh, uh, reverberated with the Joe, Joe McCarthy era uh, of are you a communist and, you know, are you loyal to this country? So 
uh, yeah, George was uh, a child of the Vietnam War and and put a lot of those feelings. I mean, you have to find a, a hook in reality to 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 hang your fantasy on. And what I love about it is it, it sparks dialogue. I mean, Stephen is is really hitting the nail on the head. And I love the fact that it's you know people it, that it's controversial because you know people uh, now with social media, it's interesting because in the old days I would sit at this very table with old uh, school fan mail. And it was like drudge work. It was like doing your homework. She'd say like, well, just do 20 and then we'll go watch an episode of The Sopranos. So you go, dear Rachel, thank you so much for your kind letter and blah, blah, blah. And it, was, it wasn't fun. Now, people can you know instantly connect with you and now you have these services that can deliver hate tweets directly to your face within seconds. And I'm surprised at uh, how outraged some people are uh, that didn't like it, you know? Um, You can't please everyone. And uh, I I once said that, again, in front of those same fans that I mistakenly said, it's only a movie in front of. I said, I just want you to know, this was for Force Awakens. It wasn't even for Last Jedi. I said, you have to understand, you know, that whatever we do, it's impossible to please everyone. You know what the headline was? Star Wars 7, bound to disappoint, says Mark Hamill. <laughs> <laughs> that got me a call from Lucas. He said, did you say this? I said, not in those words, but you have to be really careful about what you say. Currently, the big meme on the internet is Mark Hamill doesn't care if he comes, doesn't care anymore, or he doesn't care if he's in nine. And, and it came out of an interview where I was talking about, I probably should have used the word concern rather than care because I, I care deeply, honestly. But what I was talking about was how you have to make sort of a uh, uh, an emotional disconnect uh, just to prepare yourself. So, because when I read episode seven, uh, being in the last page or two pages wasn't the biggest shock. The biggest shock was that I'd never be reunited with Han Solo again, mm. that I'd never get to work with Harrison again. That was huge. And I predicted, I said, JJ, people are going to be really upset even for 30 seconds if we're not all reunited in the same scene. The princess, the pirate, and the farm boy. I was wrong. People didn't care. I mean, some people might have, but for the most part... It would have been nice. Well, but it didn't register. People didn't say, oh, that's terrible. So I was wrong. So that was the first disconnect, okay? The, The second disconnect was realizing, oh... I'm not surviving, okay? So I I said, I wish you'd push this to the next episode because I'd love to, you know, get the most out of my... And already you've violated my no cameos request. <laughs> so can I... Why not push this? I'll do this. I mean, even at the end of Act 2, you know? Give me a whole act to become a force ghost. Uh, but no. I mean, they never listen to me. I have I have lots of terrible ideas that I'm more than willing to share, hoping that out of maybe 900, you'd find two that you like. Uh, so I'm very vocal about that. But, um, you know, um, in the old days, you would write your... Now, who in the old days would write, Dear Mr. Hamill, I am so not a fan. You stink. Sincerely, Rachel. They wouldn't do that. <laughs> Here, you have a, 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 you know, a mechanism for haters to tell you how much you stink. 
Uh, yeah, and, and, and it, it totally sucks. Now, I Wait. sometimes will like a tweet just to bewilder them. One of the best hate tweets I ever got was, the only thing that makes me happy is that you're old and will die soon. And I thought, well, talk about trimming the fat and delivering just pure hatred. So just to bewilder them, I liked it, you see. Because uh, I thought, well, that'll rob them of the satisfaction of really delivering a zinger. One guy wrote, an apple would have been better in The Last Jedi than you were. And I liked it. And the next day he wrote, I said an apple, Hamill, an apple, in all caps, shouting at me. Now, I didn't like that because I thought, I don't want to perpetuate it. But uh, uh, again, it's, it's a whole new world. Social media yeah. changed everything. Now, everybody who votes, I think, has, is entitled to opinion. If you don't vote, I don't think you're entitled to opinion. But I've always voted all my life. I've never missed an election. And when people say, hey, Hamill, shut up, stick to acting. I said, really? I mean, would you say that to a, a truck driver? Hey, shut up, stick to truck driving. No, his vote is as important as mine. And I think that's the great equalizer. And that's what's so great about democracy. So I don't understand that aspect of it. Um, and, and my daughter kept saying, dad, don't be so political on Twitter because you know, you're gonna offend half the country. I said, no, 32% of the country. <laughs> but she said, she, I said, Wait, look, honey, I mean, because I only got on Twitter because I did this low-budget movie called Sushi Girl, and the producer didn't have any money, and he said, would you get on Twitter and talk about the movie? It'll help us with the publicity. I said, okay, but I didn't really think it through. So I got on, <laughs> talked about it and everything, and then quickly forgot about it, just moved on. My daughter said, Dad, you haven't tweeted in like six weeks or something. I said, am I supposed to? She goes, well, you want your followers. You only have like 1,000 followers. I said, is that a thing? I mean, and I said, and, and, you know, and also too, I mean, it seems so, um, I don't know what it is. It seems so self-involved. I said, really, who cares whether I prefer boysenberry jam to strawberry jam on my English muffin? She goes, oh, dad, if you tweeted that, you'd get a lot more followers. <laughs> yes, you know? Yes. And I said, really? So I would test it out. It got to be like a game for me because in the old days I'd get up, you know, maybe do the jumble, maybe try and do the crossword puzzle. Now I get up and do Twitter and maybe to a, a degree that it is unhealthy because I, <laughs> I really like it now. And, and it, but it's weird how it's almost like you've become the publisher of a newsletter where you'll see an item and you go, oh, I can't tweet that today. I'll make a note and I'll tweet it day after tomorrow. You know, you start planning like it's a, like I say, mm -hmm. it's a combination of a, a chat room electronic fan mail and a way to really stay in touch with with the public I well, think. well i mean you use twitter a lot to to talk politics and uh, another question from a colleague who's a star wars fan gene park um he asked where in the jedi spectrum of morality would you place trump <laughs> listen uh I was in New York in the 80s doing theater. And I, I found him highly amusing. You know, this big, loudmouth, grandiose, gaudy, egomaniac with zero sense of self-awareness. That's just inherently funny. <laughs> so, I, I mean, because he'd be in the post and he'd be, you know, I mean, he's just so larger than life and hilarious. I didn't really start disliking him intensely until he got on the whole birther bandwagon. That just really deeply offended me. 
And, uh, you know, listen, uh, I can't say anything that hasn't been said about him, but it's just preposterous. He's a preposterous person. It's a preposterous presidency. But I don't expect him to full, make it the full four years. Oh, because of because of because scandal. of Mueller, I mean, scandal. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, I mean, if that's true that Michael Cohen slipped in, you know, by way of Germany. Did you hear that? Oh, oh yeah. Oh my yeah. gosh. I mean, slipped into into Prague. Listen, it's like about. getting up every morning, living in this sprawling Tom Clancy novel. You go, I mean, dare you go over to site? What did he do today? What did he say today? It's scary. I mean, it would be funny if the stakes weren't so high. When he was taunting Kim Jong-il, I'm thinking, oh, my God. I mean, it's just scary that – because he's a, a, an incredible con man. I mean, and I really – I sympathize with the people that voted for him because, hey, politics as usual, it makes me sick too. You know, I mean, they were so wanting to just blow up the system. I get that. And if I knew he weren't a pathological liar – I could have voted for him. He was saying they're stealing our jobs. You know, we're you know all those things that resonate with the working class. I totally get that, and I really sympathize. I'm I'm middle class. That's where I came from. Uh, but I knew that he was saying anything to to get their votes. So you know, with the help of of uh, Russia, he somehow was able to do it. But, uh, you know, again, uh, it, it's tough because I, I love everybody. And, you know, um, I remember in a day where you could disagree politically and they didn't immediately think you were the enemy. We just don't disagree. I have Republican friends in the business. You know, I have Republican friends. We just don't talk about politics. It's like, you know, third rail. Don't talk about religion. Don't talk about politics. You know, there's got to be something else. But now the the atmosphere is so toxic that um, you know you're really loathed by people that support him. Let me ask you uh, a, another question. I didn't know who this came from, but um, who is Trump? Darth Vader, or the Emperor, or somebody else? Uh, well, listen, I really get upset then when people compare him, or even Dick Cheney, to Darth Vader. All right. Because Darth Vader repented. He saw the error of his ways. I don't see either one of them doing that. But, uh, <laughs> you know. Then, okay. So we've spent all this time talking about Star Wars. But another colleague of mine at the paper, Stephen Stromberg, said to me, oh, my God, you're interviewing Mark Hamill. You know, I grew up with him as the Joker. Yes. And that how you have this whole other sort of parallel yeah. life and fandom right. just as the voice of the Joker. How did you get into being doing voiceovers and becoming yet another iconic character? Well, I was always a fan of comic books and I knew the Batman television series. And when I saw the people that were doing the original animated series, they were going for like Max Fleischer theatrical Superman quality. They wanted to write up to kids and hopefully draw in older viewers. I said, this is not going to be the super friends of Saturday morning. Mm -hmm. I said, I so want to be on this show. 
So when they found out about it, they gave me a part. I didn't even audition for a role in Heart of Ice, which was the first Mr. Freeze, later won an Emmy for best script. And when I read it, I said, wow, this is a really melancholy episode where your, your empathy and your sympathy is completely with Mr. Freeze because he's trying to work on a solution that to cryogenically freeze his wife who has a, a, a terminal disease. It's so beyond great in terms of what I was expecting. Um, I said, I'm so in. Now, a couple of weeks later, because the, then the producers and the writers all knew that I knew my stuff, because I was saying, are you going to do Raja Ghoul? Are you going to do uh, Two-Face? Are you going to do characters? Are you going to have episodes where there's no villain? And don't get into that formula that the TV show got into, because I love the TV show, but if they hadn't fallen into that formula where it's a guest villain every single week, it could have gone for three, four, five seasons instead of just two. So they knew, I mean, I let my fan flag fly. So weeks go by and they say, do you want to audition for the Joker? Now audition, and they're not going to give it to me. I had done Amadeus for nearly a year and a half. You can't change the lines, but you can fool around with the laugh. Although you get notes from the stage manager. <laughs> it's getting a little Jerry Lewis, dial it back. Because I would try and uh, this day I'm going to do Oliver Hardy's laugh or I'm going to do whoever, you know, just play around with it. But I had an arsenal of laughs. And the only reason I say that, I, in retrospect, I said, why did you pick me? And they said, when we heard your laugh, we thought, that's it. Well, here's the thing, and I, the fans have heard this a million times, so I'll make it a short story. Normally, when you want a part, there's a certain neediness that comes through. And I tell actors, try and quash that. Try and uh, act like you don't want it. Be aloof. Uh, because they sense that neediness. And for me, if I really wanted a part, it would throw my timing off and I'd overdo it. I don't know what. Uh, but with the, the way Joker was advantageous to me is they were just coming off that controversy where they announced Michael Keaton as Batman. And the comic book nerds went ape. You know, oh, he can't. He's Mr. Mom. He's comedy. Before they even saw him, Okay. But Warner Brothers was really self-aware of that. And, and, and I'm, I'm trying to remember, it was 92. So yeah, it had already come out and the controversy was over. But all I know is when I went in, I my belief anyway was that there's no way they're going to give this icon of villainy to the guy who played Luke. It just it, it make the fans go berserk again. So I had no idea that I would even have a chance. I was looking at, and I tell actors, go on auditions you're wrong for just for the experience. Everything is an experience, whether it's acting school or doing dinner theater or doing children's theater or anything, just to get in front of an audience. In this case, get in front of professionals. But I went in and my attitude was, <clears throat> I'm gonna make them so sorry they can't hire me. And I just <laughs> let it rip. And I'm very cocky driving out of the parking lot after thinking, ha, top that. That's the best joker they'll ever hear. Then, of course, when they said, you got it, I went 180 degrees. Like, oh, no, I can't do it. First of all, I don't remember what I did. I don't want to be compared to Cesar Romero. Of course, one of my actor friends said, you're brave following Jack Nicholson in anything. I went, oh, no. <laughs> so I was terrified. I said, I told my agent I wanted to play Clayface. I wanted to play a character that had never been done before, so I wouldn't be compared to anybody else. But it was too late. And Andrea Romano, the director, because I went in for my first session, and she calmed me down because I said, oh, I think I really got, I painted myself into a corner here. I've, I don't think I can do this. I mean, uh, it's just too high profile. And 
Everyone has an idea how the Joker sounds. And she said, Mark, we love what you did. Just do what you did in the audition. I said, I don't even remember. She said, well, we have reference tapes. Now, see, I was really green. Now I know. I mean, you do an audition, they store the tapes. They play Beverly. Oh, I was doing that. Uh, but uh, I loved it because being a voiceover actor, they cast with their ears, not their eyes. And you get to play characters you'd never play in a million years if you were on camera. I never got to do dialects before, but now in... Uh, in voiceover, I've done German, Italian, Australian, uh, everything. And so uh, I love- Give me your best Italian. Well, you know, usually what you do is, it's like my Irish's pink hearts, yellow moons. I use the Lucky Charms TV commercial. (laughs) So, I mean, with an Italian, I would go on the internet. And like, for instance, I do this character on one of the Marvel shows, uh, Arnim Zola. I listen to Autumn Preminger in Batman on YouTube. So I would probably go and look at an Italian film and and key in on on that. But but like I say, uh, you're liberated because you can't be seen and you're able to make choices you would never make if the camera were on you. And you, you don't have that self-consciousness, you know, because if you can be seen, it's like, well, how's my hair? Is my collar straight? All that stuff. Uh, and, 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 and voiceover, it's like telling stories to your kids in the dark. It's all in their imagination. And I saw the drawing. It was just one black and white drawing. And he had, it was like teeth, old teeth. And I thought of the, that character in Yellow Submarine, uh, Glavi Davi. Um, I forget the character's name, but it, in retrospect, people say, well, who did you base it on? I said, I didn't really base it on anybody, but as a kid, I remember I had a little tape recorder I got for Christmas and I would record, uh, the horror movies on, on, uh, Saturday nights and say to my dad, well, why does Bella Lugosi speak this way? Where is he from? I don't know. He's from Dracula land, you know, <laughs> imitating Bill a little isn't going to get you anywhere in life. You know, do your homework. And I just, I loved all those sounds. Boris Karloff. He had a sort of a lisp of some sort. And I, and I didn't know, or Stan Laurel. I didn't know he was from England. In the old days, you can go on, you couldn't go on the internet. You had to go to the library and look, Oh, he was born in England. That makes sense. Hardy was from the South. They're, they're similar dialects, but they don't speak like us. And uh, so one of the characters I used to imitate was uh, Claude Rains. Crazy? You think I'm crazy? I'll show you who's crazy. He had such grit and power, especially in a part where you couldn't see him. Uh, that must have been the ultimate good news, bad news. You got the lead, you disappear in the first 10 minutes, <laughs> yeah. and you fade in just before it says the end. You know, uh, now he knows how I felt, or now I know how he felt. Uh, so I don't know. I didn't consciously say, oh, I'm going to do Claude Rains. But w- in looking back, that's probably uh, what I've done. And, and I'm telling you, it, it's gone on so long, uh, there's, there's versions that I never expected to do. Because the first one was for kids. I mean, we had standards and practices. You know, I get letters saying, why don't you kill more people on the show? Because you're always <laughs> threatening. I say, well, because, you know, it's for kids and you can't do that. Um, but in, in the video games, they're for 16 and older. They do some grim stuff. I mean, I'm saying, can we say this? I mean, can we do this? Uh, the Killing Joke is a really grim adaptation of the Alan Moore novel uh, that was a direct-to-DVD film. But uh, uh, it, listen, I never expected it to last as long as it has. Hey, I'll show you. I got a BAFTA. Now, see, 
when they just give you a legend award, you go, okay, well, it's Disney. I'm an investment it, it, in, in their best interest to make me a legend. But I won a BAFTA. Wait, isn't wait, the BAFTA is the? Wait, I'm I'm probably going to get this wrong because I'm thinking that's like the British Oscar. It is. That's the British Oscar. Yeah, yeah. And here's what's interesting. I was up against the same guy. Now there was a Video Games Awards in Culver City, and I was up against Stephen Merchant, and I was playing the Joker. I had previously lost playing the Joker to Jack Black, and I was foolish. I said. Jack Black, I love Jack Black, but he's pretty much just doing his own voice. I'll win because it doesn't sound anything like me. Well, it's voted on by the public. He won. Now, uh, and good for him. It's one of those things where you go, well, I'm all dressed up, I'd like to win, but if I don't, come on, it's not the end of the world. Uh, but so then the same thing happened years later. I get nominated against Stephen Merchant. I listen to Stephen Merchant. He's doing his own voice. Now, He's very funny, because I'm sure he was improving. He was playing a robot of some sort, and he was doing a lot of these really droll lines. He's endlessly inventive, and I thought he was funny. But again, I said, well, he's just doing his own voice. I don't sound anything like the Joker. I'm going to win. And I lost. Then about two weeks later, they said, hey, you got nominated for a BAFTA. I said, who am I up against? They said, Stephen Merchant. I said, well, stop. He just beat me two weeks ago, and it's BAFTAs. They always favor homegrown talent. I'm not flying 6,000. I mean, I lost in Culver City, was home in my easy chair by midnight. Uh, I'm not going 6,000 miles to lose in England. <laughs> and my wife saw, oh, well, come on, the shopping's great. I said, look who you're talking to. <laughs> <laughs> you go with Chelsea. They inherited each other's shopping genes. But um, so I didn't go. Then I'm coming home from a recording. You know, I do so many cartoons. The phone rings, and I hear a very drunken producer going, Hey, Mark, it's, I can't believe it, man. You won. I said, won what? He goes, you won the bathtub, mate. And I said, I said, I can hear you're celebrating. He accepted the award on my behalf, and I watched it on YouTube. <laughs> I felt really bad because I thought, you know, there's nothing worse than an actor who doesn't show up. But like I say, I thought this, the odds are slim to none that I'm going to win. I did get nominated again when I was over there. And I said to the people on, on Last Jedi, I said, can you, am I working on the night of the BAFTAs? And they looked at the schedule and they said no. I said, oh, good, because I want to go. I, I doubt they're going to give me an, another award for the same part, but just to show my support, I should go. Well, of course, on the night they had it, we were working late that night and I couldn't go. And I predictably didn't win, but I still haven't been back to the BAFTAs. And I, Because I, I, I said, this is a real award. I, I, the other ones are like the Video Games International or the 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 gigas or the dodos whatever it is their awards i've never heard of that one i'd actually heard of so <laughs> all right so here's some some rapid fire uh questions to to close out and a lot of these came from the number one star wars fan aficionado at the washington post by the oh. name of alexandra petri oh i know isn't she I know I've read her bio. Oh no, you absolutely have, yeah. and she's given me a, she's given me a ton, but I'm only going to ask a, a few. Um, I'll do it on her podcast. Okay, the full list. Here, here, here's one. Okay, did you ever get to Tosh Station to pick up those power converters? Yes, but they were in deleted scenes, and I realize now it makes sense because I come into the story organically when the robots go on sale. If they had cut to me. When they were supposed to originally cut to me, it's right when the robots jettison from the from the Star Cruiser. They cut to me, and 
and when you look at it, you, you go, well, who's this guy? So then they keep, and I go to Tashi Station. The only thing that was important was it showed that Luke wasn't respected by his peers, the uh, Kustark, uh, oh, um, he's, are you guys, I just saw something up, because I see, you know, the space pod. Anyway, it slowed the story down, and I've seen later the wisdom of cutting that. The, and I also, my original uh, entrance was cut in Jedi. The only original entrance I have in the original trilogy is in Empire. Uh, but they were smart to cut it because it moved the story along and, and the rest is history. The next one. Now that it's been like 20 years, we can admit it. Biggs was kind of lame, right? <laughs> he didn't have your back. <laughs> Dennis Lawson. You know, he almost wasn't in Empire Strikes Back. And I read the script and I said, well, wait a second. What about Biggs? He's our token survivor. To make it more realistic, they had one guy say, I can't hold it. I'm pulling away or whatever. Right. And he takes off. To make it, you know, like, oh, one guy's left and he's the one who does it. They, they made it sort of more realistic. Can't see I'm doing air quotes. But um, so I said to them, I said, what about Biggs? And they said, oh, Yeah. And so they put it in. Of course, I've never let Dennis forget that. I said, see, it weren't for me. And now he, then he, uh, he made it through Empire, so he's in uh, uh, Return of the Jedi as well. Tell us about the time. I didn't know this. Tell us about the time you kissed Harrison Ford, parenthesis, all caps. This is documented. Wow. While we were making the movie or in our private life? <laughs> <laughs> or perhaps I've said too much. <laughs> Uh, come on, he's hunky. Let's face it. Listen, I fell in love with his. We're so close to our characters. The minute he showed up on set, I went, oh, my God. He's my father, my brother, my mentor. He told me on day one, he goes, I'm the hero's hero. I said, what are you talking about? And he said, I'm the hero's hero. If it weren't for me, there's no way you could blow up the Death Star. And I went, oh, my gosh, you're right. Harrison knows so much about everything about the movie. I always thought he'd make a great director because he knows your part and his part and everybody's part. Honestly, I'd love to tell you this story, and you'd think I'd remember, but I honestly don't remember kissing him. Okay. On uh, the mouth or on the cheek? I'll ask Alexandra uh, and, and <laughs> get back to you. Seriously. Because believe me, if I had, that's I'd be proud <laughs> For everyone to know, there would be so many people that would be so jealous of me. Be another one of I'm a legend. I have a star in Hollywood Bar, and I've kissed Harrison Ford, and you haven't. Mm. <laughs> okay, the next one in Empire Strikes Back, Han rescues you and says, "That's two you owe me, Junior." Yeah. Then you rescue him in Return of the Jedi, and he says. I owe you one. Oh. How did this math work? Oh, my gosh, yeah. You know, that's so funny. People know more about these movies than we do because I haven't seen them since they were in the movie theaters. I don't watch them on home video. Uh, so, you know, there were a lot of characters that didn't get proper names until they became toys, and they had to be copyrighted. So we call it like the dustbin robot because it looked like a trash can, and they call trash cans dustbins. It didn't get its name until it became a toy. And so I'll say these things to, to people like, uh, you know, the medical droid, and they'll shout out, 2-1-B or IG-88 or something like that. And they're, 
<laughs> incense that I don't, as I don't remember these things. You have to memorize all this stuff. And I'm totally into it when I'm doing it. But then you have to do sort of etch a sketch head, get rid of all that information so you have room to memorize whatever the next thing is. And they read the novels. They play the games. They, the extended universe. I didn't know I was married for years. They said, hey, Mara Jade, she's a smoking hot redhead. I said, what are you talking about? Oh, Luke's married. He has kids and everything. I, what? And they, they showed me. And I said, see, that's typical. They get me a girlfriend four years after I stop playing the character. Yeah. <laughs> um, in Last Jedi, we get to see your island routine. How did you approach that siren about milking it initially? What was the process there? <laughs> and well, that- they're docile uh, creatures that sort of sun themselves on the beach. I loved it because it was so eccentric. You know, to see Luke's daily routine, spear fishing, dealing with the caretakers, and then just that they spent the money. It was a full-sized, I don't know how tall it was, 30 feet, to see it flying in, hanging from a helicopter. I said, in most movies, they just CGI mm-hmm. the thing, and you'd, you'd have, like, green screen, and you'd make the gestures, and they'd put you in. For them to go to that uh, trouble to make it, and they're, I don't know how many, five puppeteers or whatever. I didn't get to climb in that. I climbed inside the Jabba, and I climbed inside uh, a Bantha. In fact, sometimes I do fun facts on Twitter. Uh, I climbed inside (laughs) the Bantha, uh, and it was outside the cantina in North Africa, and it was covered with paper mache newspaper. And with a little flashlight, I remember sideways reading a review of David Bowie's concert in Paris. And even then I know this is one of the weirdest moments. You must remember this forever. <laughs> because, and by the way, he got a great review. But, um, uh, and I, I always ask, I don't just bold. I said to the puppeteers, can I go inside? They said, sure. With Jabba, it's a great way to lose weight because it's like a contained sauna bath. <laughs> I was only in there for 20 minutes when I got out of my makeup and hair. People were really upset because I was drenched and I had to go change my wardrobe, uh, take a shower, get my hair redone. They said, don't ever do that again. Um, in addition to, to the, the siren, um, wanted to know, what was it, what was it your, that you actually drank when they had you <laughs> suck on the breast of that siren? Um, <laughs> now, see, I didn't actually suck on the breast. Well, I mean, you, sque- you, yeah, you yeah, squeezed yeah, yeah, it, yeah. and this sort of aqua green yeah. sort of... Mayloxy looking liquid came out. <laughs> well, listen, in the first film, the blue milk was long life milk, which is what like campers take on camping trips and so forth. Mm-hmm. And it was ghastly. It was sweet. It was oily. It nearly made me gag. But I thought, and we just had blue food coloring in it. But I thought, if they put blue milk in front of me in a movie, you bet I'm going to drink it because it'll be a memorable moment. So that's how I knew I'm a better actor than people perceive because I was able to drink it with confidence and not because it would mean when I drank it off camera, it makes you heave. The new milk was coconut milk, which is really good and more watery than it is creamy. Mm -hmm. And then they just boosted the color in post. What does C-3PO have to do to earn his freedom? Is he just stuck working for the Skywalker family forever? (laughs) Tony Daniels is so happy because he's in every single Star Wars movie. Every single one. All the prequels, he's in Rogue One, he's in Solo. Oops, I hope that's not... But anyway, he's in every single 
Star Wars movie. Oh. That's not such a reveal. All Star Wars fans expect them to be in every movie. Because I said, I said to Tony, I said, it's perfect. You never age. And, you know, if, if you give them enough trouble, they'll just find somebody else that fits in that suit. <laughs> with me, what are they going to do, fire me? Well, no, they can kill me. Well, they've done that already. But um, so you're really, so Luke Skywalker's really dead. Is he? Because I said to Ryan, look, until, I said, why didn't you have the mechanical hand plop, plop down on the rock, right? It's not part of his organic body. I said, my theory is he left his, I said, who's to say, here's one of my terrible ideas that they rejected, or maybe not rejected, we don't know yet. I said, my theory is that much the way he force projected to the wherever they were at the end of Last Jedi, I've force projected out of my robes to a nudist planet. And I, who's to say I haven't? Because I'm not convinced I'm dead. And it's like that guy, uh, there's a story about when soap opera was alive and they, they, the guy was supposed to expire on the operating table and he was mad and he didn't want to do it. So just before they faded out, he came to again. <laughs> <laughs> but it was live TV. So he got one more show out of it. And they said, if you do this again, we're going to report you to the union. So he, he followed, but he got one more show out of it. Now see that I can relate to. So, I mean, somebody po posited this on social media and I immediately embraced it because I love having fun with the fans. I don't consider it trolling. It's teasing them and having fun. And, um, and I like that. And plus, you know, with the, with the, it's a Thala siren is what that alien's called. And I said, that's the closest to uh, sex that Luke is ever going to get in any of these movies. Do you know that's, when Kylo... That's true. When Kylo Ren and uh, uh, Daisy Ridley... I mean, I read it in the script and it didn't really register this way, but when you see it in the movie, when they're forced, you know, they're doing whatever, that magic thing where they can see each other. And that's, why, that's why he had no shirt on. So she could say, can you put something on? And it tells the audience, oh, they can see each other. Because otherwise, they, and that was a clever way. Ryan has a lot of clever things like that. But when they touch fingers like that, I went, wow, that was like an erotic thrill in a, for a Star Wars movie. <laughs> yeah. And I was complaining, never let me touch a finger. <laughs> and I could have used one too. Never got the finger and I wanted one. Um, Nobody wants to see that. Um, her final, and it wasn't even a question, it was a, sort of an appreciation to you. And that was, but seriously, thank you for being such a wonderful steward of such an important character. Luke is an icon, and you are also an icon, and we really appreciate you. Wow. See, that's incredible. I mean, that's an example of what you get when you go out into the public and, and people come up and relate their life stories. It's so in the fabric of, the, of pop culture DNA that they relate to in a way. I met my wife online. We were married by the sequel and we had twins named Luke and Leia by the third one. I mean, whatever it is, you just think, because if you look around my house, you can't really tell. There's not artifacts all over. I yeah, that's think. That, yeah. There's not one. Yeah. There are no. There are no pictures. Well, no, that's not true. What? There is a picture of you right. dressed as Luke Skywalker oh, yeah. next to your next to your wife. Oh, She's pregnant, yeah. and you've got one of the tubes there as if you're listening to your <laughs> your unborn that, child. We consider that more of a picture of Nathan, though, <laughs> be, before his entrance. 
And also, if you go right around the corner, I think there's a picture of, uh, of uh, one of the kids uh, real close up uh, with Yoda. Nathan, see, he was born during Empire, and he, he looks at all these pictures. He's sitting on the throne, the Emperor's throne, and we put a hood on him, and he's doing the Force Lightning thing, and you know, he's sitting in the hand of the Rancor. Don't you think I had a Fey Ray moment when I was in a giant monster hand? I mean, I appreciate it on a level that a lot of people didn't. But Nathan doesn't remember a lot of these things because he was so little. But um, I was the uber fan. I'd be the one that'd come in and, you guys, we're masks on the back of Rice Krispies. And Harrison's like, whatever. And, you know, Gary, I'm a Pez dispenser. It's better than an Oscar. She's like, you know, I was the, the, the certified nerd. I loved all that stuff. Uh, I loved the merchandising. I loved how kitschy it was, how funny it was. I was so jealous. Carrie got to be on Saturday Night Live and they did that beach movie where she played Princess Leia and Bill Murray. I mean, it was just great. I mean, I love Saturday Night Live. And, uh, but she was, you know, she was dating Paul Simon who was best friends with Lauren Michaels. It makes sense. Um, and I, I, you know. Would you want to do Saturday Night Live? Well, you know what? When, as I said that, I realized the pressure is so strong. I much prefer watching it. Uh, I did one sketch. I didn't host. They said, will you do a sketch? And I said, yes. And I was able to observe it. And I'd been watching from the very first episode that was hosted by George Carlin. And to see what they go through, the factions trying to get this sketch on and this, this sketch is cut and yikes, it is draining. And then they they do the show. It's over at one in the morning and they go to a party. They don't go home till dawn. And then it all starts over the next week. I don't know how anybody does it so to tell you the truth uh i worked with kyle mooney i did a movie called brigsby bear and that's much more my speed it's set in suburbia it's about little people with big ideas we drive cars these movies are just gargantuan i mean the blue screen and the the idea or green screen and and uh, you know with with brigsby bear it's so much more relatable and low-key uh, with these movies, you go on set. I told Ryan, I said, the idea of that camera being this far from my face, it being preserved forever and then blown up the size of a billboard, I said, I'm just terrified. Uh, you know what he said to me? He was sitting right in there. When the first day I met him, he came over to the house to hang and get to the he and I told him how scared I was, and he said, I am too. And I think that's when I really started to bond with him because he could have said, hey, look, I'll be there, I'll be... No, he was so... He's very much uh, his own person and he's one of the kindest people. I never heard him swear. I never heard him raise his voice. I've never heard him like be sarcastic or humiliate someone in front of other people. And I've been with directors who fired people from across the soundstage. Hey! You're gone. So I've run the gamut. I've worked with all kinds of directors, and he's easily one of the nicest people I've ever met, even though he doesn't like my ideas. <laughs> Last question, Mark. What, what does it mean to you personally to have Star Wars back? Well, people say, does it bother you that you're only remembered for Luke Skywalker? And I said, well... To be honest with you, I didn't expect to be remembered for anything. So to be remembered for one thing is great. Joker is two things, so that's twice as good. 
And if I have to remember for one character, what if I was like the best Charles Manson anyone had ever seen or Hitler, you know, where, uh, or somebody really horrible. Um, at least Luke is like a positive, uh, optimistic. Well, he was optimistic, uh, but, uh, you know, the, the idea that you can do anything you put your mind to if you believe in yourself. And, 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 and it, it's, uh, especially when you're, you know, you have to leave behind the cynicism, cynicism of adulthood and see it through a child's eye. When I read the script, I thought, gee, I'd much rather play the swaggering uh, pirate. You know, he's got all the one-liners and he's a womanizer and a, you know, a gambler. And, you know, the, every part seemed more interesting to me. 3PO, I thought, was hilarious. I mean, there's a character who would rather be serving hors d'oeuvres, you know, in a parlor after the opera. I've forgotten how much I abhor space travel. I mean, uh, he, uh, hilarious. Like Hudson from uh, Upstairs, Downstairs, only in, 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 this, in this rollicking space opera. That, to me, was inherently funny. Vader, he's only on screen. I think now I've read 12 minutes, and he has such an impact. So, like I say, I thought... Dorothy probably is the least interesting character compared to the Tin Man, the Lion, and the Scarecrow, and all the witch and everything. Uh, but you have to have one entry-level character where the young people can look at them and not be intimidated. They might say, well, the princess is royalty. I get nervous around her. Or Han Solo's kind of swaggering, and he's scary. Luke, he, he was like no better than them. I mean, he, he, they could say, I could, I'm comfortable with him. And he's he, he's not form, formidable in any way. I mean, even the first poster, which came much later, I'm 6'2", with this musculature and ripped abs and a balcony you could do Shakespeare from. They still couldn't get it out of their minds that... Because I, I, I didn't finish that story. When I read the script for the first time, in, when they sent it to me, uh, I said, oh, Harrison must have been Luke Starkiller because he's a leading man. And when I did the screen test, he was the leading man. I looked like the sidekick that was annoying. But, you know, you said you're going to take me, you know. I, and he was like, hey, you know. So I'm reading this thing. And I do, when I get to Luke, I go, wait a second. If he's a farm boy, he's still in high school is that me? And I kept reading it because I forgot who I played. And I said, gosh. And then when I got to Han Solo, I said, well, of course, that's Harrison. Oh, my God, I'm the lead. I never thought it was through my eyes. So um, uh, to come full circle to your question, it's uh, been such an incredible experience for people to feel that they know you. I mean, we're all told, don't talk to strangers, but everybody knows me or thinks they know me. And uh, like I say, it can be taxing at some times, but for the most part, it's just one of the most enjoyable uh, things I've ever experienced because, you know, you do a Broadway show, it closes, there's no record of it, and it's, it lives only in people's memories. Uh, and with this... Uh, you know, it's given you sort of a passport to any country in the world and, and you're welcomed. Whether you go to Australia, you go to uh, Beijing, you go wherever you go, it's, it's astonishing how it's, uh, you know, because I thought, well, I wonder if this will play in such and such a country because uh, the irony of it, it's so 
stylized and funny. And uh, I remember the British people working on it were sort of uh, skeptical, to say the least. Once I got to know them pretty well, because we went, I went with Guinness, Sir Alec, and I went with uh, uh, Kenny and Tony, the robots, to do the Tatooine stuff first, before Harrison came over, before Carrie came over. So I got to know the crew, and I'd eat dinner with them at night, and they'd lower their guard, and they said, well, between you and I, it, it all's a bit of rubbish, isn't it? And I said, what, the movie? They said, yeah, well, they thought it wouldn't play at night. It would only play matinees for kids. They said, well, it's a bit of Doctor Who, really. I said, well, uh, I, I disagree with you. I really think this hits the sweet spot where it's meant for kids, but it's going to appeal to kids of all ages, much like the Disney films do, because it makes you feel, hopefully it makes you feel like a kid again. And we're, it, we're not taking ourselves seriously. I mean, look, uh, 2001, it's a, it's a, a masterpiece, but a barrel of laughs, it ain't. And this one, I think, not that I would compare ourselves in, in stature, to 2001 it's in that realm and will be seen by the people that go see silent running and uh logan's run and all of those things forbidden planet and so forth but it has a kind of uh, um, uh it speaks to modern audiences in the way you know the bickering on the on the get this furry walking carpet out of my way it's just got a, a kind of a, a a clever spin on all these elements we've seen before just mushed up together. Everything old is new again. And there's so many elements that you recognize from other movies, but it comes out the other end as something refreshing like you've never seen before. Uh, I certainly never expected it to have the impact it did, but, uh, you know, you can't help but be really, really grateful. And like I say, to be able to reconnect, because we sort of parted ways and I didn't see Harrison for years and Carrie I'd see occasionally, but not enough. And for us to be able to come back together. And at this point, um, there's a comfort level, you know, Carrie would relax around me. She know I wasn't, you know, sort of angling to get something from her or gossip about her or tell, put her down in front of other people. So there was nothing more enjoyable than Carrie just relaxed and uh, I had plenty of time, obviously, because it's such an episodic film. I'd be coming into the studio to do, you know, other things, whether it's wardrobe or stunts or something, and then straight to her trailer to hang out with her. And, and uh, you know, like I say, you know, she knew I hadn't changed all that much and, uh, you know, except getting older. And uh, it was great to reconnect and, and, and to be with the, the old gang again. It's so rare in this business, you know, it's so unexpected. Because like I said, I thought even if they, I didn't spend all those years thinking, oh, someday I'm going back to Star Wars. I thought, you know, once they do the prequels, they're going to do seven, eight, and nine. George, way back in the day, said, would you do a cameo where you hand Excalibur to the new Young Hope? So I thought, at best, I'll do one day's work where, you know, uh, I give the sword to... Later, he said he was just having fun with me. But I took him seriously. I, he said this back when we were in the first couple of weeks of shooting. I said, when's this going to be? 76. He said, uh, well, like 2011. I challenge anybody to add 36 years or whatever it is to their 76 plus whatever it is to their age, whether you're nine or 69. It's shocking. Yeah. <laughs>
<laughs> so I'm 24. I'm going, I'll be 53. Oh, no. <laughs> On the other hand, I like the idea of having a job lined up at the turn of the century. Uh, that would be interesting. I love George. I'd do anything for him, of course. I said, yeah, and I immediately agreed on the spot. Of course I will. But uh, uh, like I say, it's, 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 it's from a different perspective now. And uh, I'm just having the time of my life. Mark Hamill, Luke Skywalker, the voice of Joker. Thank you very, very much. An incredible honor to have you on the podcast and to, and to do it here at your home here in Malibu. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to Cape Up. Tune in every Tuesday. You can find us on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. And how about doing me a huge favor? Subscribe, rate, and review us. I'm Jonathan Capehart of The Washington Post. You can find me on Twitter at CapehartJ. The Washington Post's newest podcast, Post Reports, is doing something different. Every afternoon, we'll bring you stories about the state of the country. The number of false and misleading claims he made on the campaign trail the last few weeks is breathtaking. And the world. And I think that that is where climate change is starting to come in. It's causing fires to move more rapidly, to spread more rapidly, and also to burn hotter. The stories behind the stories and how we come to know the things we know. That's the sound of Antarctic snow. Healthy snow. Not healthy snow. Stories that capture the reality of the world inside and outside of Washington with nuance and unflinching honesty. That's Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers, and I can't wait to share this new podcast with you. Get it now at WashingtonPost.com slash Post Reports, or wherever you get your podcasts.